This podcast may not be suitable for all listeners. Discretion is advised. What you hear on Cold Truth, it is subjective. It is based on the perception of myself, the interviewees, and what is available to us, the public. We are not law enforcement, prosecutors, or judges. They are the ones, the only ones, that are tasked with the responsibility of serving out justice. My goal is to tell these victims' stories to the best of my ability and to gather as many facts as I can. Hey, hey, I'm finally releasing an episode. Hopefully nothing else happens in between the time I record this and the time I release this as it has been a rough go since the vigil. Sometimes life just throws you curveballs and all you can do is just get through them. So let's get started. Shannon Polk, born on May 8th of 1990, is forever 11 years old. On August 16th of 2001, Shannon was last seen by her neighbors alive and well in her Candlestick Mobile Home Park in Prattville, Alabama, located in Otaga County. Prattville is, by my standards, a large busy town with interstates and highways running throughout. Candlestick is a left or right turn off of U.S. Highway 31, which runs north and south from Michigan to Alabama. There are four lanes of traffic with no stoplights or signs near the entrance of Candlestick. Once you make the turn onto Candlestick Way and go down the hill, that, by this user standards, would be a pain in the butt in the winter. Once at the bottom, it feels like you took a turn into a different world. Although it seems to still hold its protective, insulated feel, as described to me by residents, it lacks its luster, to say the least. We were met with suspicious eyes and revving engines as we walked where Shannon walked. It felt as though I had walked into a brewing storm that never quite matured. It is oppressively hot and humid in Alabama in August. And it was on the day Shannon was last seen. It was the kind of day that if you're not in a cool body of water, being outside is not a good choice. The best choice is to be inside, which seems to be the choice of most that day, except Shannon. Her older sister says Shannon was gone before she woke up, and only one person has come forward to me to say Shannon was at her house for approximately 30 minutes around 10 a.m. Two others have come forward to say she stopped by, but that she went on her way after they told her she could not come in. Nothing out of the ordinary with that. It seems Shannon visited her neighbors on a daily basis, sometimes multiple times in a day. So I've been told. No one realized this was the last day Shannon had to hang out with them. Time should be on an 11-year-old's side. A note of caution? I'm about to get real blunt and not mince my words. And if this is something you do not want to hear, you can skip to the interview portion. Okay, back to business. I would be lying if I said I wasn't questioning this timeline, which has been edited more times than I can count in the last year, based on people coming forward to say it was wrong. It was in the 90s that day. It was sunny and humid, and she was grounded, according to her sister. Did no one think it was strange not to see her? Where the hell was she all damn day? No one looked for her until 7 o'clock that night. Was this normal for her? Her sister said she left in the morning and at 10-ish, she visits a neighbor for 30 minutes 
and is last seen alive at approximately one o'clock. Where was she for, at the very least, those two and a half hours? Where did she go after she left the last household to see her? Why did she not pop back home even to get a drink of water, lunch? Did someone else offer her food, drink, or could Shannon have left her neighborhood? Why was the elusive walker, now I guess it's a stroller, left on the curb? So many questions. The cold truth remains out of reach for me. Back to what we really know, or at least think we know. Her mother got home from work around 2.30, went to Walmart, cooked dinner, and when Shannon was not home at 7 p.m. that night, they started knocking on doors and calling friends. By 9 p.m., the police were called and arrived very shortly thereafter. There was an extensive search for the kind-hearted and trusting Shannon. Local, state, and federal, along with K-9 and many volunteers, joined forces in hopes of bringing Shannon home alive. This is the point that folks come back to and will question, so I'm just going to go ahead and say it right now. Normally, I would talk about, um, in this timeline, the sketch. Well, one final time. There is no sketch. There is no eyewitnesses. Was there a fake one? Yes, there was. And in 2019, they recanted their testimony under oath. By the way, lying on the stand is a punishable offense. Did someone comment in the group that they were one of the witnesses here recently saying they lied under oath? Yes. Sorry, not sorry. That's the cold truth. If that person was in fact one of the witnesses to the hairy mole man driving two cars, two cars, need I say more? Which, it seems I do because I still get requests to share the damn sketch. For the sake of justice for Shannon, please let the never-should-have-been sketch go. It may be easier for you to accept in your mind that you are looking for a hairy mole man driving two cars. Because the cold truth is, not having at least a face to fear, it's too much for most people. But it's time to stop. And I tell you what, right now, I will eat my own words. Actually, I'll eat a handful of dirt if Shannon's killer looks like that damn sketch. I feel like, and I know this opinion is shared, be it not for the fake sketch, this case would be solved. Can you imagine the killer's delight when this sketch was released? Ugh, it's just terrible. Many hours were wasted searching for this man. Please do not expend any more or rationalize someone else away because they do not look like the fake sketch. Why they put this case on the backs of children's eyewitness testimony, it's beyond me. I find that extremely unfair. Did no one question this at the time? I do hope the male adults living in that home were questioned. Maybe they were forced to make him up. Did they tell a parent or adult in the home first? Did this person influence these children's minds, therefore planting a false memory? Did the investigators? I feel bad for them, I really do. I don't want anyone to think I think this is anyone else's fault other than the killers. It's not. Regardless of what coulda, shoulda, woulda you can come up with, if you did not murder Shannon, cover up her murder, or lie about an alibi, no one blames you. And if they do, they ain't got no sense. So pay them no mind. 
forgive yourself and live a life that makes Shannon proud. That's the healthiest advice I can give. And if you are covering for this snake in the grass, I hope you are charged to the fullest extent of Alabama law if you never tell what you know. Here is what I know. He will be caught. It's up to you on whether it is because of you or in spite of you. Speak up. It's up to you on whether it is because of you or in spite of you. Speak up. Speak up. Speak up. There is no other choice. You will have to face judgment at some point. Whether that is God or karma, what goes around comes around, you know? Make it right. Call this number right now. 334-595-0256 Ask for Detective Sergeant Tom Allen. Back to the facts. The hope of Shannon being returned to her family was snuffed out on October 6 of 2001 when her body was found just off County Road 66, which is a winding red dirt road. This dirt road leads to fire lane roads inside of a hunting preserve. It is roughly a 16-minute drive from Candlestick. The two hunters who found her remains told the papers that her body had once been in a trash bag tied with rope. Her clothing was in a pile. And after my visit to the crime scene, my perception did not change too much. Her killer or an accomplice knew right where that place was, I'm telling you guys. They probably had red dirt all over their vehicle. My personal speculations are that this killer is not all that bright and is either lazy or careless. He simply got lucky to have gotten away with this particular crime. The crime scene, while hard to find on your first visit, would be a convenient spot to return to. At that time, he would have been able to drive right up to the spot where her body was found. With Shannon's height and weight, it likely took a cradle carry or over-the-shoulder carry to dump her body from a car into the underbrush without the trash bag breaking, unless you doubled up. I did a little experiment on this with my daughter, albeit begrudgingly. She did oblige, and she is five foot and weighs about a hundred pounds. And she is just a little bit bigger than Shannon was. Shannon was described as four nine, I believe, at roughly around eighty-nine to ninety-two pounds. My daughter did fit into the black trash bag. Um, definitely not the small kitchen bags. And I was able to lift the bag without the bag breaking but I could not pull her around in it. Maybe if it was a sturdier one, you could by doubling it up. As I was doing this little experiment, I do have to say that now I'm not that big, I'm not that strong. That in mind, but I sure did struggle trying to lift that bag. At some point, the killer would have had to lift it, especially if you do this alone, you would be touching all over the outside of that bag. And I sure hope that that bag was tested thoroughly for skin cells or sweat, hair, any kind of DNA, um, because she was not a small child. She was tall and thin. So this took some work to get her into a trash bag, as awful as that is to talk about. By the way, other than my doggies not really liking this experiment, no one was hurt. Anyways, so here you have... Shannon's body 
her clothing that was not on her body, the paper was very specific about that. And it was consistent throughout all the different papers from that time. The clothes were in a pile and that the, her body was in the bag and that the clothes were in a pile inside of the bag. The bag or her body or both were tied with rope. That is a little unclear and I have still yet to speak to either one of the hunters or anyone that knows them. All of those items were left all in one convenient bag, unburied. That's just not the brightest bulb in the box. Whether he is just stupid or was acting in haste, this does not seem organized or well-planned to me in the least. I want you to take a moment and remember back to that time in your life in 2001, especially around August 16th of 2001. Was there a person's vehicle that was covered in red dirt when it typically was not? Or someone normally had a dirty car, but all of a sudden their vehicle was spotless inside and out? Did someone have an abnormally a large amount of trash all of a sudden started cleaning their home excessively? Or maybe even bought and smelled like cleaning products they just normally wouldn't? Did someone you know change their appearance, leave town unexpectedly, or display personality traits that were new? Did someone overly explain where they were on the 16th without provocation? Avoid discussing Shannon, maybe even becoming hostile at the mere mention of her name? If these changes occurred on or near August 16, 2001, and you noticed more changes when her body was found in October of 2001, and they're grouped with other pertinent information such as availability, physicality, and of course the mentality, but the mentality to kill is sometimes a hard one to rely on, and we want to believe the best in our fellow humans. So sometimes it's not easy to rely on that because a lot of times they blend right in. And we don't know if the intent was murder. Maybe the killer's intent was to rape a child, as awful as that is, and things escalated. She could have walked in on something she shouldn't have. We just don't know. Most of the time these killers, they blend right in and they seem completely harmless. If we could only hear their inner dialogue, no one could hide. But to those closest to them, there will always be signs. Some are subtle, but they are there nonetheless. I'm sure the investigators have much more, but that's the bare bones of this case. We could go on and on speculating about all of the different suspects and crazy things that have gone on in this case, but does that really help? Or does that hurt? I'm not one to name names and I'm not going to be paying $9.50, I think it actually got raised to $9.99 just to pull a court record. If I can find something relevant, I could talk about that person and name them. But I'm just not, I don't have the money and I'm not going to pay $9.99 for public court documents. Under the Freedom of Information Act, I find it uh, atrocious that they charge for this information in the state of Alabama and other states, they don't. And so I'm not going to be paying that much money just to find a name that I can talk about when we have no idea who the killer is. They say that they've had some good suspects from the beginning and that they're still suspects to this day. Gotten a lot of mixed signals and 
I don't really know. Where does that, where does that leave you when you think you're on the right track? And then there's a lot of double talk. And so, which is probably done on purpose and they have that right. And I, and I don't begrudge them that. Um, I don't need to know what the investigators know. I don't need to know what the prosecutor's office knows. And if they want to talk to me, I'm always available. If not, I totally understand. I totally get that. I just want to help. I don't want to hurt. And I feel like bringing up a bunch of people's names that may or may not be the killer is just not fair. So I've decided to not do that. Maybe I'll change my mind down the road. I'm not sure. But I do find it sad that after one year, the information I started with is not that much deeper than today. I wish that her family members, friends, and neighbors that did not participate in the interviews for this podcast would have, or at least talked to me while I was in Prattville. In spite of this, I still feel I did my best. With the help of many others, we got loud about justice for Shannon Polk. We got her story more news coverage in the last few months than it has had in the last 10 years combined. That has to be helpful. I wish I could raise the funds needed to test every single item for DNA. And I hope that someone who is listening that has the power and funding to do this will step up for Shannon. I will continue to keep her page active until I die or the killer is caught. Preferably the killer is caught. And I will continue to be available for anyone wanting to be Shannon's voice on this podcast. Otherwise, I will only be releasing new episodes as new information is released. This is not the end. I have hope that this is the year. I will continue to reach out to other podcasters and media to share Shannon's story. I will continue to host live podcasts on either Get Vocal or YouTube telling Shannon's story. And I will be there the day this bastard walks into the courtroom to face judgment. I am forever grateful for the friends I have made who diligently seek justice for Shannon. And until next time, I leave you with an interview between myself, Wesley, and Deborah. This was recorded right before my personal life got complicated by COVID, among other things. And I tell you what, I hate that that momentum from the vigil was lost. It just eats at my heart. And I take responsibility for my part in that. My big part in that. And the vigil went off uh, without a hitch. And and I thought it went really well. I did too. I know we were worried about it ahead of time uh, or just in the hours before, you know, we had all these, uh, you know, visions of nobody showing up or not being allowed to do it at the last minute. But the thing went great. I don't think it really could have gone much better. Right. We managed to get the two mayors in the same space uh, without uh, without too much trouble, which was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I kind of <laughs> thought there might have been some tension there. Rick Hendricks, he runs a bunch of different radio stations out there in Alabama, right? He does. Yes, he does. He's a really awesome guy. I really like him. He brought his van. He helped me get an interview with Paul Horton for the morning show. He helped set up WSFA or W... It's SFA. SFA coming out and covering the vigil. I still haven't been able to find any of their live coverage from the event, but hopefully mm-hmm. we will soon. I haven't seen it either, but uh, maybe we can check on that and see, uh, see when they're going to put it out. Well, let me just go ahead and play a little bit of my interview with Paul. 
It's the morning show on Mix 103.3. Thank you for listening today. I'm Paul Horton. Now, many of us here in the River Region, we know the happenings uh, back in August of 2001 regarding 11-year-old Shannon Polk. And this August 16th, which would be the 19th anniversary, there will be a candlelight vigil at Pratt Park in Prattville. And we have Mel on the phone today to tell us a little bit more about it. Hey, good morning, Mel. How are you? Hey, how are you? We're doing great. Thank you for uh, having time with us today and letting us know about uh, what is happening August 16th in Prattville at Pratt Park. Now, Mel, for our listeners who may be new to the community here, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, Shannon Polk and uh, what happened back in 2001? Yes, Shannon Polk was an 11-year-old girl living in Candlestick Mobile Home Park, which is in Prattville, Alabama. And on August 16th, during the middle of the day, she was kidnapped and she was not seen again alive after around about 12 in the afternoon, according to the papers. And her body was found on October 6th of 2001. She had been brutally murdered. And so it's been 19 years. And my hopes is that through the podcast, and the vigil, we raise awareness and um, help get some resolution for this family who've been waiting 19 years. And the media always, you know, like they'll come out on the 20th year anniversary. So my goal was solved by the 20 year. I don't want to wait. Right. 19 years is 19 years too long. So it would be great if we could get things moving in a positive direction by the 20th year. This is a uh, really heartbreaking. It's 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 very difficult, and you know, friends, families suffer. Uh, and uh, to, the goal is, like you said, is to bring justice before the twentieth year. And one of the things that I love, Mel, about this community that we live in, the River Region that we mm-hmm. live in, is uh, that we we are one community. We we look out for one another, and we care, and we bring comfort, and we. In moments Absolutely. like this, in moments like this, we want to ask all of our uh, listeners to to come be a part of that uh, this candlelight vigil. So it's going to be an uh, an interesting day, a, a very uh, touching, emotional, um, but very cool thing that's happening August sixteenth at Pratt Park. Uh, what are some of the activities that are going to be happening that day? Absolutely, we are going to. Well, it'll start at six o'clock near the amphitheater in the lawn. So please bring a blanket yeah. and definitely wear a mask. The governor's extended the mask mandate. So we ask that you wear one, but if you forget, don't worry. We gr- we're going to have some available. Okay, good. We'll start off with listening to some bands. We have Hank Williams, the fourth oh. and his band that are going to be performing. Uh, Roger Lyles, who wrote the song for Shannon that aired in Alabama, and it's on the podcast. You can hear it on there as well. And a couple more singers. Oh, uh, Wesley Dennis. Mm. He He's amazing. He sounds like uh, Randy Travis. So we've oh, got cool. some really a good lineup of some music, and then we will go into the candlelight part and some speaking. We're going to open it up for people if they want to say anything. I'm hoping to get maybe a mayor or an investigator on the case mm-hmm. to speak as well. Yeah. 
And then we were going to end the uh, vigil by sending off 19 lanterns. The family will be doing that Um, just in remembrance. And then, of course, her tree is right there. It was planted right after her murder. And it was just a tiny tree. It wasn't even, it was small, as small as the shovel used to plant it. And now it towers over the park. Well, it's it's just a... After 19 years, yeah, yeah I'm, it, it's uh, it's probably, uh, I'm sure it's an amazing sight. But we we do want to invite our listeners to come on out. That's going to be August 16th at Pratt Park in Prattville, starting at 6 p.m. Now, Mel, uh, is there a Facebook page that we can all go to to find out more information and, and follow? There is. It's called Justice for Shannon Hulk. And there is also an event page on there. Or you can always email me for more information at coldtruthpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, great. Thank you so much for that. We're going to put that on our social media as well, Mix1033MGY. We're going to share that. And again, just invite all of our listeners out uh, in our community here in the River Region. Uh, we are stronger when we stand together, and we want to stand together and support and bring comfort and justice uh, to Shannon Palk before the 20-year anniversary, so we'll do what we can. Mel, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We appreciate it, and we'll continue to talk about uh, what's happening August 16th, this candlelight vigil in honor of Shannon Polk. Mel, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. If you have any information regarding the Shannon Polk case and you'd like to share it, here's a tip line for you for Tom Allen of the Prattville Police Department, 334 334- Five nine five zero two five six. That is five nine five zero two five six. A secret tip line three three four five nine five zero two five nine. Or you can email tom allen at prattville dot gov. I tell you, I was so nervous. <laughs> Did it sound okay? Oh yeah. Yeah, I think that really kind of gave us the boost we needed with him being willing to do that to get all the other uh, media on board. Because again, you know, this was a 19-year presser. And um, you're right, because I I saw some uh, coverage and, you know, we had the network uh, NBC coverage, uh, did an article on it. And I even even ran into an article in San, it was, came out of San Francisco. Oh, wow. Really? Put something in there. Yeah. So, that is awesome. That's exactly what we wanted. And Deborah, man, she single-handedly got Dateline on board to do the cold case spotlight. Yeah, I was surprised. And they right. did really, it was a nice article. It was. Yeah, she's really good. Yeah. She's good for the case, for sure. She is. And we'll we'll be talking to her in a little bit here. She'll join us and really passionate. And I'll let her, her tell that. But I do want to give her a big thank you because her and her sister came all the way down from Tennessee. The Associated Press, which is national, I believe. And I spoke to one of the journalists there. I mean, she was so cool. She we talked for quite a while and she's offered to help in any way she can with, you know, information because it's so hard to come by in Alabama and um, doing a deep dive piece on Shannon sometime this year. So I'm really excited for that. 
me too. And that may be the next phase, you know, as we talk about where to go from here is is to really focus on uh, the deep dive and more press coverage and uh, to try to find out more information and, and see where the case is actually going. That was really great of her. Let's see. We had WSFA there, Alabama News Network, and yep. Elmore Taga News. Right. I had to get back up on the stage and I didn't get a chance to talk to her. Glad she came out and did that piece. It was really good as well. Yeah. And with Alabama News Network, I was unable to find their coverage. I saw myself on the TV, but we were out to eat and it was <laughs> muted. So I know it aired somewhere. I just can't find it. It's really frustrating. It could be one of those clips when they play a story or play a clip and then that's it, you know. If they don't play it again, but you would think they'd have it out on their website or at least have some sort of a a link. I emailed the producer, so I still haven't heard back and I was getting impatient. So I reached out to my new friend, Rick Hendricks, and he was going to see what he could do to maybe they'd answer him. I'm assuming they will. (laughs) He might have a little more clout. Right. So hopefully he's able to get a link to at least I can have it and see it myself. Yeah, see how it went. Yeah. I kind of got like a little conspiracy on that. I wonder why they they didn't publish those. Uh, Maybe Mm. it was something I said because I know I had kind of called out the FBI. It's possible, but but that's kind of what we need to do more of probably moving moving forward is to kind of keep the pressure up, you know. Absolutely. That's what this is all about right now. I mean, that's how I feel with where we go from here to have this solved by the 20th year anniversary is keeping the pressure on because... You know, a lot of it is unfortunately just the politics of it. You've said before, uh, we're, we can't solve it at our level. We can talk about it and we can help and assist and, and, and uh, highlight things. But the actual uh, law enforcement is the only one that can do that. And so. Exactly. And you know what? Like, I watch and listen. I watch a lot of YouTube true crime and I listen to more podcasts. And I know you do, too. Yeah. And having their support and them thanking me and working alongside of me, I, you know, that just shows the passion that they all have for this case. And I'm just humbled by that. Absolutely. Speaking of which, all the different government officials and law enforcement agencies that came out and spoke. The two mayors, wow. And uh, the DA, assistant DA. Right. We had... I was really happy to see them. I know, me too. And former mayor Jim Beard, or is it yep. Byard? Byard. Byard. His speech was so moving. What a passionate man, still having that ribbon from 19 years ago. He actually had to... Uh, he was going to speak when he you know, he came up twice to speak. And the first time he... He cut it short and he, he said it was because he uh, was getting too emotional. So he, he stepped Aww. away. Then he came back and he wanted to make sure that he got another chance at it because he wanted to say everything that he said, which uh, you yeah. can tell it's, it's real uh, personal for him. And then we have the present mayor, Gillespie, because mm-hmm. without his approval, we wouldn't even been able to have the event with everything going on in our country right now with COVID-19. Put himself out there a little bit, I think, too. But it was getting a little bit, you know, we weren't sure how many people were going to be there. And he probably felt a little uneasy, you know, especially because uh, he had his election coming up, which he won again, by the way. So he'll be oh, great for another. You know, it's unfortunate times right now. And it's unfortunate that a health issue has become a political issue. So I'm just appreciative that he spoke 
and let us have that and that he did stick his neck out for us because I know that was that was probably scary and we do want to make sure we're safe. I felt like everybody did social distance. I, I was pleasantly surprised because I had I was kind of picturing that we might have a little bit of a, a problem, you know, with that part of it. it was, yeah. yeah. And then speaking of Gillespie, did you hear that little nugget of about the evidence? I did um Run that by me again. I remember him saying something about that. They're basically waiting on the DNA to come back. And so he had said that some of them had just come in. That's what gives us hope right there. Because my, you know, my, my scenario that I always think of, what I would love to see, would be one of those cases where the law enforcement gets to go knock on this guy's door and say, guess what? You know, today's your day and take him to jail. Right. Because we'll get the DNA. That's the way I'd like to see it go. I think he should be very scared right now (laughs) because these people are passionate. And then right down the list, we've got the assistant DA with the fourth district, CJ Henderson. What a great kid. I say kid because he's just so he looks so young and he said he was, you know, young when this happened and him and the assistant DA and chief of staff, Mandy, she was just such a doll. They were both very, uh, uh, very good when they, when they spoke and very passionate about the case. And, and she, I think she was one of the ones that was on some of the pieces that had been done in recent years. I think she was featured on some of them. Yes, you're correct. And I talked to her for quite a while on the phone and at the event and, um, you know, it's humbling to get a thank you from the prosecutor's office. Yeah, like, yeah. I can tell you from experience, that is uh, rare. It's really nice to work alongside and get their input on things. And I don't want to do anything to mess up a case or make their job harder. And so having their guidance and what they need and their willingness to come and speak was just so, so awesome. It just shows their passion. And I'll tell you what, I love the movie Sweet Home Alabama. And she reminds me of that movie. I mean, she's just like the epitome of everything I think about when I think of Alabama women, you know? She definitely fits that category. I mean, she's gorgeous. Her voice is beautiful. She's smart as a whip. And she is not somebody that is going to back down in a fight. I mean, he's tenacious, so killer beware, buddy. They're coming for you. And I think that they are grateful for the kind of coverage that that you do and that this kind of thing brings because they they want people to, they still need people to come forward probably, you know, they're going to need people to help them. And and I think they're appreciative that, you know, when we talk about it and we get people uh, together um, after all these years that, they can maybe they'll they'll have somebody to help their case, you know, with some testimony, some something like that. Some of that may not have come forward yet, um, but to to hear them talk about DNA is is great. Now, they can't really say they can imply things, but they can't really tell us. I don't think. I, and, and in some cases, I think they want to keep that secret so that the, the suspect is in the dark as well, so he doesn't make plans or to to try to find a, a, a way to get out of it. Exactly. Yeah. But again, it's 19 years. So I think that their willingness to say as much as they have is, you know, just the eagerness to have resolution, you know, and justice for Shannon. And a lot of times they hold on to that information for so long that it gets 
frustrating for journalists or, you know, true crime podcasters that are trying to help families and the families. Um, and so you can tell that this is a really good group. And then we have the attorney general's office. Um, I spoke to one of the agents on the cold case unit that is working alongside with uh, Sergeant Detective Tom Allen at Prattville PD. He'll all talk about here in a minute because I just love him. But um, such a nice guy. And we played phone tag for quite a while. But when when we did talk on the phone, he invited me to come and sit down with him while I was there, which was just so, so nice of him. They don't have to do those kinds of things, you know. Right. And I wish I had had time to go there. But I have to admit, the prospect of driving to Montgomery was just a little (laughs) bit intimidating. (laughs) You have to do that next trip then. Oh, absolutely. I definitely will. And I'm going to be back for sure. So I definitely want to meet them. And I don't know if you listen to the podcast, Three Men in a Mystery, the episode about Jamie Beasley, the two friends that were murdered in Alabama. And they're featured on the Attorney General's Cold Case Unit's website as well. That case is, oh, is, wow. uh, had an arrest. You Beasley? Jamie Beasley or JB Beasley. And okay. I can't remember the other girl's name. I meant to look that up. Oh, yes. I had, I'm familiar with that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was one of the cases where they, they got it with the DNA, correct? I think it was over maybe in the Dothan Enterprise, Alabama. Yeah, it yeah. was. It was Dothan, JB Beasley, and Tracy Howlett. That's it. Yeah. I do. I do know that one. Right. They were murdered in 1999. Um, They were both 17 in Ozark, Dothan area of Alabama. And, you know, 1999. And they have just made an arrest this in the past six months. Yeah. And if you want to hear more about that case, please, I will put the link for Three Men in a Mystery in the episode description. And they do a great job. I had listened to that podcast previous to finding Shannon on there. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, they only have about nine cases. And so JB and Tracy were right beside Shannon on the picture reel. So that was really cool. And it gives you a lot of hope uh, moving forward that 1999 and 2001, it's getting done, you know, and, and um, it's just really cool. Yeah, just a, in a side note, uh, you know, those guys of uh, Three Men in a Mystery, you know, John Lorden has got to be one of the most thorough. When he does a, a case, you know, he gives you every single piece of information. Yeah. He does a real good job. And of course, of course, Gray Hughes. I enjoy it. And, you know, he's busting my balls before. You know what? You. Oh, well, I probably was annoying, you know, like I so appreciate his channel and what the three of them with with Morph, Mike Morford oh, yeah. have done. Um, I think John Lorden, he's probably got a little bit of OCD like I do. And this the way the three of them work together. Yeah. I'd love to sit down with them one day and get their input on Shannon's oh, yeah. case. I think that they would. And. Oh, I'd love to be able to use Greg Hughes' talent oh, man, to set up man. the crime scene. Because, you know, we've got possibly three different locations with one being unknown. But, you know, there's a lot that would be so helpful for people to see it on, you know, a map. And I yeah, just, just don't have the talent he does. Yeah. I mean, we could always try that, but he, he's got the setup so good for it. And uh, maybe one day we'll convince him to do a little 
little segment on it or something. Uh, I hope so. Yeah, not to get too far off the trail, but uh, I was thinking again about the uh, solving the cases, you know, years after with the DNA. And and then I just hope they're doing that in this case. Um, and just to, there was a case down in Pensacola, Florida, where the family, the, the murdered woman's son, didn't even know. It had been uh, since, uh, I think the case had happened in 1987. And so it was just last year, everybody thought it was just a cold case because the law enforcement was keeping it uh, under wraps. And mm-hmm. one day they just, they got to call the son and say they made an arrest, you know, and they did it with the DNA, uh, with the Parabon family DNA. Uh, and I th- I'm hopeful that's what's going on in Shannon's case is, is we might see that just out of the blue one day, which would be amazing. And I really do. I think that that is, it's groundbreaking and it is just changing the way that forensic science works and in such a good way too. And now to see it go through and be accepted in a court of law and hold up against appeals and things like that, that's just really cool. It's so awesome when you think about the technology wasn't there years before, but now they're, be, they're able to go back and get these guys now. You know, they thought they had gotten away with it. So it's, yeah. it's very satisfying. There's a lot of physical evidence for forensic testing in Shannon's case. Right. The trash bag, the clothing, you know, the rope. Mm -hmm. There's a lot there. And they submitted a ton of swabs. And hopefully one of those is going to be the right area. And it's going to... Right. And I know they've tested some other locations uh, for some things. And so they might be able to match some of that um, up as well. You know, and that's the thing is, uh, yeah, they can use their use logic and their their best guess of where a deposit of DNA right. may be. But you can't just turn in a whole trash bag. It doesn't work like that. You know, you have right. to swab areas of contact that you think the killer came into contact with that sample. Right. I just started listening to a new podcast called The Fifth Floor. Okay. Oh my gosh. You'll have to check it out. You'll love it. And it is actually the investigators they're cold case investigators and these are yeah and so they had it they i just listened to an episode about submitting samples and you know the ins and outs of dna so it's really cool but yeah like i learned a lot from listening to them and how cool is that that they're doing a podcast and utilizing this Speaking of which, they listen. Detective Sergeant Tom Allen, like he's listening to the podcast. And that's, that's pretty awesome. Some of yeah. the media. And I think it was Mandy from uh, the D- DA. That's just uh, that makes me like, them. oh, my gosh, like it's definitely not good enough. Like, oh, what did I say? <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, I mean, it's it's really, I mean, the information that you're given and the work you're doing. And regardless of, you know, if, if the uh, technology doesn't always cooperate or, you know, and, and you're, you may think you don't sound as good as, as some of these other guys out there, but hey, at the end of the day, it's the, uh, the content, you know, and the work you're putting in that, that's really, uh, you know, raising the awareness and, and making okay. things happen. So, you know, I wouldn't be too, uh, too hard on yourself, but actually, you know, when I listen to yours, it sounds, when the podcasts sound good when you listen to them, if you go in, yeah. you know, on, uh, uh, Spreaker or, or sometimes on Spotify, you know, I'll pull it up and, and, um, you know, I've heard some, and I'm sure you have too, some, some pretty bad ones, you know, that don't sound good at all, um, from, from others out there, but, uh, yours, yours is not in that category. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. Well, good. I, I wish I was a little bit less 
OCD when it comes to the editing because that's what creates the time lag, you know, and that's important. You got to get the information out there. And I wish I kind of hadn't taken that class to know how to do all of it because (laughs) I let that like slow me down so much and just nitpicking everything and trying to make it sound like I've been doing this for 10 years. I'm not Michael Day or Jack Luna. I, you know, I just need to stay in my lane and, and do the best I can and um, not be so hard on myself. You're totally right. I really am. Everything will take care of itself. You're right. It's about, you know, just creating a buzz. And I really think like we can check that box and that the DA Randall Houston took time to, you know, he couldn't be there, but he, he wrote out a speech for CJ to read. Yeah. And just, and then to my favorite, we got to talk about, Tom, he is just, I was yeah. so glad to finally put like a face to the guy I've been talking to on the phone. He is just such a sweetheart and such a nice guy. And he even took photos that day and sent them to me. Um, wow, fancy camera. Yeah. yeah. And was willing, he's willing, he's always willing to talk and, you know, answer any of my questions. I'm pretty sure I'd probably drive him up the wall and back down again. But that just shows how much he cares. And he is lead investigator for with the Prattville PD. And he is working jointly with the cold case unit for the Attorney General's Office of Alabama. And I have faith that they're going to get it done. And I hope that the FBI can make... We've got a movement happening right now. We as a country need to start reevaluating our moral compass it should be centered around our children but i'll say the vigil couldn't have gone probably couldn't have gone better than it did with the cooperation you know because it wasn't just a bunch of people got together like you said it was the you know the da's the law enforcement the mayors were there we kind of when we were standing out there kind of wanted maybe a few more people to have been there but i don't think that there was uh, anything lacking uh, you know and i think someone had counted maybe around I thought I'd heard 200-ish. I was thinking of uh, it could have been about that. Um, Which, for a vigil, that that's yeah. that's a lot. You know, when I first planned this, I was thinking we'd be lucky to get 40 people there, you know? Um, well, and then when COVID you know. came along, it was like, oh, gosh, like, we'll probably just be me and the family and you. <laughs> <laughs> I can see so, a case, you know, that just happened, like, the uh, you know, having tons of people come out when somebody is either currently missing or has just happened in 19 years. That was a great turnout. And in those, I think it was your idea, wasn't it? The lanterns. That was awesome. I hosted a vigil for a friend of ours that passed away way too young and they're beautiful. And so each, they, they seem very pleased. She was, she, she messaged me on my way home. I'm just like, I absolutely loved those lanterns and, and with the music in the beautiful. background. Oh, right. That was perfect. Yeah. Part two of this episode will be released tomorrow night. And again, thank you for listening to cold truth. Y'all have a good one. <laughs>